Lord, it's striking to us to think that you know the depths of our heart, our hearts, and, and you love us the same. It, it, we just stand amazed. You are an amazing God. Lord, last night as the thunder rolled, as the, as the lightning hit, we, we just understand your power in the smallest sense. Just simply as it rolls through the skies, your creation. We look up at the stars, we see the, the, the wonderful moon last night. And ref, we reflect on your power and your majesty. And Father, we thank you so much for that, that. That it wasn't simply restricted to the creation of some physical universe, but... But you created us. You, you populated that universe with your children. Lord, we fail. Lost that relationship. But you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. And we're so grateful. And we're so thankful. And we give you the praise and the glory due your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So in 1988, Barbara had surgery to remove a a large tumor that had crushed her pituitary (coughs) gland, ultimately rendering it uh, useless. About a year after that, after she had uh, recovered, we we went to Hawaii to rest and relax a little bit and think about what we would do next. Would we be able to uh, continue our pursuit of becoming missionaries in the Middle East? What would we do? And while there, I learned how to scuba dive, and and Barb learned how to snorkel. There's a story behind uh, that I've mentioned before. Perhaps in the future, I'll mention again. But. But the, the blue water, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. The, the depth and the, the clarity were, were just striking. And the fish and the coral and just the beauty of, of that. One day we, we took a boat over to, uh, off of Maui to a place called Molokini. We were gonna, I was going to dive, Barbara was going to snorkel. On the way out there, uh, just, off, uh, just a little bit of ways there was a place where you could watch for whales. And one of the things, uh, we, didn't see, we didn't see any, but one of the things that you could do was uh, in the middle of that channel to uh, get out of the boat, get into the water, and uh, put your head underwater, clear your ears, and just listen. And if you did that, you could hear the whales singing to one another. How many of you have done that? You know what I'm talking about. So a number of you have. And it's just an amazing thing. So Barbara and I are out in the water and this, and we're doing this and we're listening. And suddenly the depths of the ocean came to my mind. And I realized that we weren't just off the shore of this or off the shore of that. Uh, there were, I don't know how deep <laughs> the water was, but it was deep enough for a submarine, a whale, 
and a shark to be layered on top of each other and not even be aware of one another's existence. So I'm going, that calming, wonderful, mystical, spiritual, listening to the whales, singing to one another experience suddenly caved in on me and I could not get out of the water fast enough. I'm telling you. So we had left the solid foundation of the shore of uh, Maui, which by itself is just a little dot in the ocean anyway. And we had gone into the depths there. And, you know, there are sharks and things out there. And that's the problem with the depth of the ocean is you don't know what's out there. But metaphorically uh, speaking, uh, moving from the that solid foundation there in Maui into the depths of the ocean is not far from where we are speaking scripturally from. Where Minute by minute, word by word in the text, we have begun to deepen to a point where we're literally in the uh, the depths of the ocean where you take this wondrous miracle that Jesus, which we've been looking at for a few weeks, this wondrous miracle where this uh, man who had been lame for all those years was healed and now it's turned into this uh, theological conflict such that the Pharisees wanted to kill uh, Jesus. And they were serious about it. And and when I read this story and I read the the follow-up on it, and, and, and of course, ultimately, what happened to Jesus uh, Christ, I'm always reminded of the fact that Jesus was serious when he said that if they hate me, they will hate you. I mean, just this past week, 73-year-old Mark Crosby and an 80-year-old friend, they were just simply praying in front of a Baltimore Planned Parenthood clinic when they were both viciously attacked. 73 and 80, viciously attacked. Crosby remains in the hospital with severe injuries. It's just sad to see a time in our nation when simple prayer can land you in the hospital. And it's as if we're living, uh, believers living in Rome or, or Babylon. Yet, God led the believers who lived then through Rome and through Babylon. and He will lead us now. But what we see here is that John recorded for us uh, something that... Uh, Jesus wanted the Pharisees and us to know. Words that really challenged the very core of, uh, of the leaders and the, and the crowd. So if you have your Bibles, if you're not already uh, there, turn to John 5.20. The sermon will be on 21 to 30, but we need the 5.20 just to uh, reset the stage where he says, For the Father loves the son and shows him all that he is uh, all he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel now thankfully there's no guesswork whatsoever because verse 21 and verses 21 through 22 tells us 
uh, what these things are. So I want you to pause for a second, and you have to do this. You have to kind of reflect for a second. And I know you can't do this, so I'm asking you to do something that I know you can't do, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. And that is, try to imagine that you do not have 2,000 years of Christian history and doctrine and teaching in, in our heads. Imagine that you are a faithful Jew that you are looking for the Messiah, and that the person in front of you may well be the Messiah. And then he says this, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now, I know it's difficult to get rid of 2,000 years of understanding, but I want you to imagine, as long as we're imagining different spaces, I want you to imagine that I was the one who had said those words in reference to myself. Now the elders here are spiritual and they are compassionate. And I don't believe they would fire me immediately, but someone would call 911 and have me committed to find out what in the world was wrong with me. You've got to understand that's what the Jews thought at this moment. They're like, we, who is this man who not only makes himself uh, related to and equal with God, but now he's claiming the very prerogatives of God. We say, well, of course, it's Jesus. We got that. Well, that's been hammered into us since we were itty-bitty or since we were itty-bitty in the faith. This is the first time these guys are hearing it, and it's exploding their brains. They don't know what to do. Because he's telling them that not only is God the giver of life, not only is God the arbiter of judgment and the recipient of honor, but so too is the Son. This was information that was really difficult for them to absorb. Jesus said to them in verses 24 through 27, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So what we're dealing with here and what Jesus is presenting to the Pharisees are words of life and death. The very destiny of those who are listening to him hinge on how they respond to his word. I mean, and the same is true with us. 
Jesus will have the final word of salvation and judgment. And in this text, he brings the two things together. He brings the hour of decision and the hour of judgment together, and he is the one at the center. And he's saying that the time, the hour of decision is now. So what does Jesus mean when he says the hour is coming? Well, I think if you look at the broader look at the Gospels in the New Testament, what you find is this is a reference uh, likely to the day of Pentecost. That is a time when uh, the Spirit of God would come in a new and a fresh and a, in a living way and that this gift of life would be given not only to the Jews but also to the Gentiles and alike all around the world and throughout time. And he spoke of this already, uh, the hour uh, is. Uh, and, and as we know, that hour has already been 2,000 uh, years as the church still is alive and well, I would argue, in bringing people uh, to uh, Jesus uh, Christ. But even the now here, uh, even the now is, is clearly seen just by what we've just seen in the previous text. I mean, uh, it, just to pick one, the Samaritan woman uh, at the well, Jesus said, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you a well of water springing up to eternal life. He gave her eternal life. You see, this was already happening. I mean, she went away so excited she couldn't contain herself. And uh, so many from the village uh, were then converted at that point. So it was already happening. The, the hour is coming. In, and now is when that there's two things that are going on here when he talks about the dead. One is he's talking about those who are dead spiritually. And then he is also talking about those who are physically dead. First, let's talk about the spiritually dead. I mean, Jesus, he didn't pull any punches at all. He confronted them by telling them that he had the power to raise the dead. Now, spiritually dead, are, those are people who have no understanding, no comprehension that they are accountable to God. They never make a response to what God has said or brings into their life. They do not believe in the invisible realities of the spiritual world. In fact, I don't think... I think we have to use our divine imagination in order to do that as well. You do realize there are angels here present. You do realize there is a spiritual dimension that is present whether we are aware of it or not. The Bible is very clear about that. And yet the spiritually dead are people who believe only in the material only in the visible that they can see. But what we see is that Jesus has the power to give life to such people. He gave that life to me. 
But he didn't stop there. In verses 28 and 29, he said, Do not marvel at this. I think it's great. I would love to see the faces of the people. I'm going to tell you something that, you know, don't marvel about these things. And then he goes on and he tells them something and they're just marveling. And he's saying, don't, don't marvel. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, now he's talking about the physically dead, will come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus is telling uh, everyone who will listen, not only do I have the power to give life to those who are spiritually dead, but also to those who are physically dead. I'm reminded of the, the context when he says, uh, what is easier to say? Rise, take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven. I mean, his point is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because no one will see anything or note anything at all. But it's easier to actually do the miracle of rising, taking up the bed and walking. So that we have a similar thing here where he says, okay, anybody can say, I have the power to raise uh, from the dead those who are spiritually dead. It's a whole other thing to say, I have the power to raise the physical dead. I mean, now we are in, whether you know it or not, this is deep, deep theological waters. And Jesus' words staggered the Pharisees. We don't see the picture. I wish this was movie rather than word. I don't know in some ways. But if they had wanted to kill Jesus before, they were passionate to do so now because Jesus was claiming divine prerogatives. These things were things that were only of God. Let me say something about this text as well. If you've ever wondered why Christianity has taught that Jesus Christ is the second person uh, of the Trinity, the Son of God for 2,000 years, you don't need to really look much further than this. Like many of you, uh, I enjoy the reading C.S. Lewis. And if you're familiar with uh, Josh McDowell and his work, he repeated Lewis in a, in a different way, uh, but he he wasn't a trained theologian. He was, in fact, a, a medieval literature scholar. How detailed must you be to do that? But he did that at Oxford. But the skills that he used to analyze that literature, he brought to the Bible. He brought also that kind of logic to an understanding of how are we to take this? And I alluded to it uh, before, but we'll let Lewis uh, tell you what he thought about Jesus saying that he was the giver of life, the bringer of judgment, and the recipient of the very honor of God. Read those 21 and 22 again. So in a BBC radio talk, he said in 1947, he said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people say about him, that is about Jesus. And that is this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great 
moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me... This is Lewis speaking about his own personal understanding of Jesus Christ. To be obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now, Lewis framed what is known as the trilemma. Trilemma meaning three premises. I think McDowell put it in the form of Lord, liar, or uh, liar, Lord. However, whatever order he put it in, they were all L's. It was a nice alliteration. You know, Lord, liar, lunatic. You can't accept him as simply a great teacher, as many as many do. For the Jew... Only God gives life. Yet here we see that Jesus gives life. For the Jew, only God executes uh, judgment. But here, Jesus judges. And not only that, Scripture is very clear. You can find it over and over and over again. God does not share His honor, His glory with anybody. It's even stated as such. I will not share my And yet that's what's said here is that Jesus receives the honor due to God. What do you do with that? You have to do something. That's why I asked the question, have you ever wondered why Christianity has taught this? You can't just ignore it. This is part of the word of God. These are such extraordinary claims. I mean, Jesus says there's coming an hour in history when all... The dead, all of them, bad, good, evil, kind, loving, unloving, shall come from the grave. I mean, he's going to empty the cemeteries of the world. And those who have done good shall experience the resurrection of life. Now, a couple of questions immediately come to us. What does done good mean? I mean, many people make up their own minds about uh, and have their own uh, ideas about what it is uh, to do good. They, you know, I mean, if you've been a relatively friendly person, uh, you know, uh, to your neighbor, you know, you don't yell at the clerk at the store, 
Uh, you, you tolerate misorders from McDonald's, which happened to me. Uh, or you speak kindly to people now and then, you know. And you even did your best to keep the Ten Commandments. You haven't murdered anybody, not maliciously. You haven't done any evil kinds of things, right? Then what happens? Well, I've done good. When I go to heaven, I've done good. I'm going to go into glory. That's not what this verse is saying. Not by a long shot. I mean, this verse is just barely removed. And in fact, in the Greek text, it's not removed at all from what Jesus Christ had just said. The precision of what it is as to how you receive the gift of eternal life. To do good means that you have received eternal life. And we read that in verse 24. I looked at it once. We're going to look at it a little bit more right now. Truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. When Jesus says essentially what is an oath statement, you need to listen. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The man or woman, the boy or girl, whoever, who hears his word and who believes in him who sent him, to the one willing to listen to those claims, to recognize his identity and act on that basis to follow him, that is the one who, what does it say? Has eternal life. What does it say? Has passed from death to life. When, when one hears and, and one believes what he says, you have eternal life. You, I, want you to, I want you to hear my words in your brain. If you, and I'll state it another way, have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life. That's what this text says. You have passed from death to life. You will not receive it someday. The promise is not that you're going to get eternal life. The promise is that it's already been given to you if you believe. We have it. Right now. And even with the life, the judgment is also past. Those who believe have already passed from death to life. Jesus is making it very clear to the Jews and to everyone who's listening, who reads his words, these are the terms. Here are the terms on which one passes from death to life, and that is to Listen 
and to believe. Now all of us are born headed for death. We don't like to talk about it, especially in our culture. We don't like to talk about it at all. We put it as far, we make it as pretty, we put as, you know, all the, the bells and whistles and smells that we can on it in a good sense. And we decorate it in a such a way that it doesn't actually happen, but we are all headed uh, for death. And beyond death lies the second death unless we already possess eternal life. Thus, the most essential question anyone at any time ever, the most fundamental question that we have to settle is whether or not we have believed in Jesus and received the gift of eternal life from His hand. Because only those in whom the life of God is dwelling can do good in God's eyes. In the words of an old hymn, He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. Not in the same way that we think of good as theologically, but you might put the word complete or whole, that we might go to heaven saved by His precious blood. So those who have heard his word and who have believed, they're the ones who have done good. So what does done evil mean? Should we list the nasty nine or the dirty dozen? Or whatever little thing, ditty you can come up with? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean any, it doesn't mean that at all. Those who have done evil are the ones who have turned their backs on the truth of what they have heard the Son of God say, and they've shut their ears to the offer of the grace of God. This is not a competition who has sinned more than who. It's not. We have all... What is it? Okay. For some of us have sinned. For all. All. All means all. For all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The issue is not how much we've sinned. The issue is whether we believe or whether we don't believe. Those are the ones who have done evil. And when they are raised from the dead, it will be to judgment. Lewis, again, he's helpful here as well. God is going to invade this earth in force. But what is the good of saying you are on his side when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream or something else? Something it never entered in your head to conceive comes crashing in something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror 
into every creature. What he's saying there is this. It will be too late at that point. There is no use in saying, I choose to lay down when you can no longer get up. It's not a choice. That will not be the time for choosing. That will be the time for discovering which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now today, this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back judgment so that we might have this chance. It will not last forever. It won't. We think it will, but it will not. It will not last forever, and we must take it now or leave it. Note the uh, assurance in verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When it comes to judgment with Jesus Christ, with God, there will be no argument. Uh, There will be no complaints of unfairness. It's the work of the Father and the Son. The Father who gave us life to begin with, who knows all that's in our hearts, and the Son who came among us to know. And those are mysteries. That's even deeper waters than any of us can traverse. No one knows the mystery of the Trinity. No one knows the mystery of how it is that God, very God, could not know our experience, and yet we're told that Jesus Christ, through his life on this earth, understands completely and fully. And we decide which we're going to have through the Father and the Son, whether it be judgment or whether it be life, In Revelation 5, John, same author, he takes us beyond our earthly boundedness and he shows us the very throne, the very throne of God. We looked at this a year or so ago. The creatures of heaven, everyone, they're around the throne, they're worshiping God and at the center of this worship is the Lamb who had been slain. Then I looked, John says, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders 
fell down and worshipped. The Lamb is at the heart of the universe. He has the right, the power, to give the gift of eternal life. In 1 John 5, 1 uh, through 12, or 11 and 12, it is written, this is the record, this is the record uh, that John wrote, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. Listen, and I'll repeat it again. I want you to hear this carefully. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important relationship in your life. It is the relationship that will determine your ultimate destiny. So I want to close with a quote from A.W. Tozer, great, wonderful teacher of the Word of God. He says this, The teaching of the New Testament is that now, at this very moment, there is a man in heaven appearing in the presence of God for us. He is as certainly a man as was Adam or Moses or Paul. He is a man glorified, but his glorification does not dehumanize him. Today he is a real man of the race of mankind, bearing our lineaments and dimensions, a visible and audible man, whom any other man would recognize instantly as one of us. But, more than this, he is the heir of all things, Lord of all lords, head of the church, firstborn of the new creation. He is the way to God, the life of the believer, the hope of Israel and the high priest of every true worshiper. He holds the keys of death and hell and stands as an advocate and surely and surety for everyone who believes in him in truth. Salvation comes not by accepting the finished work or deciding for Christ. It comes by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole thing, the whole living uh, victorious Lord who is God and man fought our fight and won it, accepted our debt as his own and paid it and took our sins and died under them and then rose again to set us free. This is the true Christ. Nothing else will do. Deep deep water, yeah? We began wading in that water last week. What we're seeing is how John chapter 1 and verse 1 is being played out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men father we come before you this morning really humbled because our 
our ability to conceive. When we think about your person, uh, we're, we're immediately in a place where we say, uh, God, you are God, and we worship you and we praise you. We make no claims to understand you any more than you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Lord, I believe that this offer, this statement that he was making to the Pharisees and those around him was a genuine plea for them to believe. To understand that Jesus Christ gives life. That Jesus Christ is the arbiter of justice and judgment. That Jesus Christ is deserving of honor. And that if they believe that, they believe you. And in this, they have, and we, the gift of eternal life. We thank you for who you are. And Lord, I, I don't know what glory will be like other than the perfections that we seek and beyond. But I don't know that it's possible for any created being to understand fully your nature. But that does not keep us from worshiping you and giving you the honor and the glory due your name. We thank you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.